90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, just drinking wine because my midterm was just given. So, you know, that's that's a relief. Hey, you're not supposed to do that when you're the one giving the midterm. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, that is true because now my work just began because I have to grade them all. You're, I was like, you right. save that for the grading. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you're so right. I'm pre-gaming, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's all that's been. Uh, we've been doing a lot more field work, and uh, it's been super windy here, terribly windy. In fact, I got to use our fancy, uh, you know, show notes on wind advisories and warnings and stuff because someone was asking me some questions, and I said, oh, here, check out our show notes. I was very excited. Yeah, watching some of the wildfires out there and the massive smoke plumes because they were spreading, well, like wildfire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you could see these huge smoke plumes on radar, on infrared satellite imagery, on visible satellite imagery. It was mm-hmm. just incredible. Yeah. And the dust storms coming across Kansas down to Oklahoma. Oh, my gosh. It was unbelievable. Those dust storms the last couple of days were just crazy. Like the sun was not a disc, right? It was just this massive smear up in the sky. There was so <laughs> much stuff entrained in the atmosphere. When I was up at the Mesa Lab for uh, a meeting earlier this week, which for those of you that don't know, it's up uh, in Boulder on the side of the, the mountain. There's flat irons right by it. And it gets very windy. Uh, so much so that while I was up there, we were gusting to 50, and there was some worry about people's car windshields getting blown out. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, it gets really windy in the mountains. You don't really realize it. Those downslope winds are terrible some days. Oh, yes. Uh, so it was it was quite an adventure. But I, I have to check in with you because after last week's show, we said we were going to hold you into taking an iPad into the field and trying it. <laughs> uh yeah so well i didn't (laughs) yeah um so what wound up happening is that we were supposed to have it was a 60 percent chance of thunderstorms on sunday and so our mapping exercise was maybe like a day and a half's worth and so i wound up ushering the class through together so we did a lot of the mapping together and so i needed my big map board so i could use my um dry erase marker on it so everyone could see oh man yeah but but uh the first weekend in april we're going back and so i already have it downloaded my map that i'm going to use so i already have it planned for for use that day. All right. Yes. Well, we'll follow back up with Corey and we'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Well, you know, I have to think that you were in a, uh, a little bit of a mood after (laughs) making your final, because you made the show notes for this little two part series that we're going to do here. And it's all about killing off things. That's right. You can just go and write that as the title, kill all the things. (laughs) (laughs) um i I love john that we've done so many shows that i actually had to go back and search our own website to make sure we hadn't done the show before (laughs) yes you know it's i was sending out some guest invites uh earlier for some folks that were trying to get on the show for interviews and 
said, our show has been running for about, and then had to go look up how many episodes, and was terrified. <laughs> well, that makes me feel better that it's not just me that's disconnected. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. I was like, man, I'm glad that, glad John has this search feature on here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, my mood, obviously very black, because I thought that we should talk about mass extinctions. <laughs> yeah, so happy subject, but something that happens... I'm going to say with relative regularity in the Earth's rock record. Right. I mean, in terms of extinctions, that really happens all the time. And and where this actually really did come from was because I've been teaching Earth history. And it's actually the art that, that spurred this show topic for me. Because if you just look up any of the names of these mass extinctions we're going to talk about and then tack on art, there are some amazing drawings <laughs> of like dinosaurs dying and all this sea life dying and stuff it's crazy so that's what i should that's what i want you to take from this show is that you need to go google extinction art or something like that um but yeah so regularity these mass extinctions there's not really an actual definition for something to be a mass extinction versus an extinction but they are fairly common and Five times, about five times in Earth's past, there's been these really large mass extinctions where more than 50% of life on Earth died. Right, which if you look around and think 50% of the species that you see on a daily basis are gone, that's a lot. Exactly. Like we think we're so, we think we're so biodiverse, but back in the day, <laughs> I mean, but that's exactly it. So these large amounts of biodiversity just disappear in a relatively short amount of geologic time, geologic time being the key there. And that is these mass extinctions. And so there are some estimates. I read a whole bunch of different estimates when building my slides this semester, but between 90 to 99% of, li of life that has ever been on earth is already extinct. Right. So there's really, we <laughs> yeah. only see a little bit. And in fact, we see, you know, the current iteration right. of, of life on Earth. But there have been some pretty weird things that have lived on Earth in the past because it was so different in the past. Exactly. Like we get really complacent in thinking that the way Earth is now is how it's always been. So we live in what we would call an ice house time right now because there is ice at both of the poles and at high altitudes. But ice houses in Earth history are actually not the norm. They're certainly the exception to the norm. So the Earth we live in now doesn't really reflect a lot of the past ways that Earth has looked. Absolutely. And... You know, we say that mass extinction, you probably are thinking of, oh, there's some big body that's coming in and striking the earth and killing everything off. That's one way to do it. But a lot of these have been slower processes. Right, exactly. I mean, that's that's the easy way, really, right, <laughs> is to hit us with a meteorite and then kill everything. Um, but these are a lot more nuanced. So like I sort of already intimated, there have been five times in Earth's past, where we say these five sort of, in quotation marks, uh, mass extinctions. And actually, a lot of scientists think that we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction right now, which is caused by us. Um, so that's something we'll get to, because um, that's a pretty interesting topic. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot that goes into 
killing off 50% of life on Earth. You know, is it marine life? Is it land life? Is it things that are flying in the air? So there's a lot of big differences. And obviously, you know, we have all these different spheres at work on the globe. You know, you've got the geosphere, the biosphere, the atmosphere, you know, the cryosphere, whether we have ice or not happening, because there's a lot of biologic activity that happens there, which we'll talk about in our fun paper, and, you know, the hydrosphere. So all of this stuff interacting um, is much more nuanced than just saying, oh, this big catastrophic event happened. We killed a bunch of stuff. Moving on. Right. So <laughs> if we start with the the first mass extinction, we need to go back about 455 million years. Right. Exactly. Um, so this one is a long time ago, right? Obviously, after we started to have life. But I mean, the whole purpose to going back and looking at these is to look at what our Earth is like now. And, you know, some of these extinctions are pretty good analog for the extinction that's happening globally today. So that's kind of scary. Um, and so we start back with one that actually that doesn't look a lot like today, and that's the Ordovician-Silurian mass extinction. So we're going to use a lot of these geological period names. Um, you can always look at our geologic time show if you're interested in that, because that's a lot of these are defined by these geologic periods. Well, and you'll notice that most of the mass extinctions that we're going to talk about are the time period dash time period extinction. And that's because big events like mass extinctions are used to help define when these periods begin and end. Exactly right. So big events, whether they're caused by catastrophic stuff or a whole amalgam of other things, exactly right. So that's why we make those. And the first one, Ordovician Silurian, about 455 million years ago. And this one was kind of long-lived. It took about 20 million years. And obviously, this is pretty old. So it's I'm not going to say it's the least understood, but it's kind of is because they don't know whether this was kind of all at once, if there was many pulses within that 20 million years, but it was a relatively long-lived mass extinction. Yes, and being that long ago, most of the life on Earth was in the water. So this is mostly an ocean life mass extinction, and it was quite mass. About 85% of the species on Earth at that time, gone. Right. Um, <laughs> as we go through this, and you think about those numbers, you know, 85% of the species, species is obviously that, you know, the smallest denomination where you're going down the kingdom phylum tree there, but that is a lot. And it always amazes me to think that we have the biologic diversity that we have now based on this because what 15 percent of species were all that lived after this and then it exploded again you know and again so 85 percent that's quite a bit and as you said mostly marine things and these poor brachiopods man they get it nearly every mass extinction like. <laughs> <laughs> they do <laughs> and it's just because there's so many of the darned things right there's so many brachiopods i'm kind of twitching right now you can't see it obviously but because we had to learn so many of them in paleo class. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so mostly... I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Oh, that's right. You took the easy route and did geophysics instead of geology. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so these darn marine brachiopods get it. And then trilobites. And man, we keep trying to wipe out the trilobites, but it actually takes about 500 million years for us to finally get those guys. 
um, out of there. But uh, these little graptolites, they bit it here at the end of the Ordovician Silurian, and they were these weird little corkscrew things that floated in the water column. So lots of things that float in the water column, very, very sensitive to water column geochemistry and temperature, and that really, they get it in a lot of these mass extinctions. <laughs> yes, and when we're talking this far back, not only do we have to consider that life was much different, the environment was much different, and even the arrangement of the continents was obviously much different because of plate tectonics. Exactly. Um, so 455 million years ago, we did look a lot different. And one other thing is that the sun shone at a different luminosity, you know, back... Back in the day, it was 30% less luminous than it is now, right? So 500 million years ago, it was still less luminous than it is now, although not that much. And uh, this continental configuration has a big part in how ocean currents circulate and how atmospheric currents circulate. So therefore, what can live where? And as soon as that starts to change even a little bit, you can sort of start to precipitate this snowball of events, right? This so-called tipping point, um, which we talk about today, right? So those certain things can all come together. Orbital parameters, um, so stuff like how far are we away from the sun? What is our tilt? You know, are we at the maximum tilt? That causes more extreme seasonality. There's so many culprits for these extinctions, and we'll talk about them over and over again, right? Because most mass extinctions are not just one thing. It's a culmination of a bunch of different things. A series of unfortunate events. <laughs> especially, uh, <laughs> especially if you're a brachiopod. <laughs> yes. And so in this time, we're transitioning to a very cold climate. And Gondwana was at the pole. So it starts to become glaciated. And we're also weathering a lot of silicate minerals, which pulls a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere, which means that we also have less greenhouse effect. We're trapping less heat from the already weaker sun. And things just get very cold very fast. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So this is really a series of unfortunate events. So this one kind of hits all the high points of climate. What can you do to make stuff cold? Okay. And taking CO2 out of the equation is really what does it. So We've got this big landmass at the pole, which already wants to have ice on it because it's cold and it's at the pole. And then you have increased weathering in some areas of this big supercontinent. Um, and as soon as you do that, so if you have a lot of landmass in areas where it rains a lot, okay, so in these little, if you think about a zonation of climate zones where you get lots of rain, like in the tropics, you're going to weather all these silicate minerals, sequester a lot of CO2, and it just gets worse and worse from there. And so to have this huge landmass at the pole, you start just a little bit of glaciation, and it's just a, that little nucleus that you need, and we think that they had a big runaway glaciation. And that has further effects on sea level, right? Because you're locking up all this water in the water cycle in these big continental glaciers. And so you start to cause eustatic sea level change, which means worldwide sea level change, and that really messes up all those little things that float and live in the water column. Well, not to mention, as you're lowering the water column, the circulation changes. And in this case, we think it brought a lot of 
oxygen to the bottom waters, which ironically enough, <laughs> probably is what did a lot of these in. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> um, yeah, and so also, what do you do? You change all those nutrients when you start to upwell or bring these bottom waters to the top. You know, the water column is much smaller than it was before, and so it gets more homogenous, lots of nutrients, lots of oxygen, basically poison a lot of things, which is very surprising. Yes, and there's even one more theorized <laughs> potential contributor <laughs> to this extinction, which if this did happen, it was really, really a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> I know. So you can think, like, the Earth has to be in exactly the... Well, the wrong spot if you're a brachiopod, I guess. Um, you know, that we're not getting as much energy from the sun just due to the way we're tilted and how far we are in our orbit and stuff like that. So that sucks. And then all these glaciers are bringing down CO2. You've got this increased weathering that's bringing down CO2. And then this thing that totally has nothing to do with you. You're just floating out in space and you get this gamma ray burst from another body within the Milky Way. And it turns out that it is theorized that this gamma ray burst could have actually stripped away a lot of the atmosphere, meaning that all of your nice photosynthetic organisms uh, were exposed to massive amounts of ultraviolet radiation. Exactly. So these poor little, I mean, it's not funny, I guess, but it kind of is. Like, all this stuff is happening and all these organisms are trying to deal with, and then you have this galactic thing go wrong, right? And you get basically radiation poisoning and die anyway despite all these climatic things that are changing so if you're trying to adapt through evolutionary mechanisms you're still screwed basically these brachiopods were shaking their little foot at the sky <laughs> and then a gamma ray burst <laughs> so now i think these are really interesting and actually this is kind of i don't know if this is new i don't think this is newly theorized but people are really trying to tie these you know, extraterrestrial events to these mass extinctions. So this isn't the only one where something like this has um, come into play. And they think a lot of the minor extinctions, not just these mass extinctions, but larger minor extinctions actually have to do with things like this, gamma ray burst and supernova that change a lot of the atmospheric conditions here on Earth which I thought was really interesting. This was actually just on a uh, star date a couple of months ago when I wrote it down because I was very excited on public radio. They talked about these minor extinction events having to do with these extraterrestrial occurrences. Yeah. So, well, are you ready to move up about oh, another 100 million years? Fine. <laughs> so if we move up 100 million years, this brings us into the Devonian, and just as we have this explosion of biodiversity, there is in this series of extinctions that occur in relatively short succession. Uh, so 5 million years, maybe 15 at the upper estimates, but mostly in a few million years, we get uh, another extinction. Right. And so this one kills about 50% of all marine genera. Um, so genus, not species. All these things, I guess this is a biology thing. We are not paleontologists. <laughs> I'm going to get that out there before we get corrected on anything, right? <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> uh, and these numbers are obviously, they're very fluid because imagine the fossil record is very incomplete, 
right? You kill something, and then it has to get preserved, so something has to not eat it into oblivion, right? And it has to sort of stay around in at least as much intactness as you can be to identify it, so that's hard too, right? Um, and so finally it gets preserved, and so that's where these numbers come from, or by looking at the fossil record and saying, this stuff lived for a long time, all of a sudden at this age, it's not living anymore, and that's hard, and so these numbers kind of move around a lot, is what I'm saying. <laughs> they do, and 50% of genera translates to something like 70 to 80% of species, so we're still talking a lot of loss of biodiversity, um, and again, we're mostly talking about marine here. Right, but so the difference between the Devonian now uh, is that we actually do have some land plants and then a lot of arthropods, so little bugs and stuff that are running around on land, and they were really unaffected. Um, the Devonian is known as the age of fishes because there are a lot of fish uh, during the Devonian, and you know we have these cool armored fish like the coelacanths and the um, dunkleosteus. That's my favorite one. There's some excellent dunkleosteus art actually <laughs> show I <know>. title uh. <laughs> i say that we have a dunkleosteus i'm gonna keep saying it as much as possible a skull <laughs> at our natural history museum we've had it for a long time and it's terrifying it's this terrifying huge armored fish and these armored fish they don't have really jaws like their teeth I say teeth also in quotation marks because it's part of the armor. So it's just this big like shell of armor and they just slam it down and it's razor sharp and ridiculously scary to a three-year-old at a museum, I will say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but so this is their time period. But a lot of them and their ilk died during this and also a lot of the reef building organisms and they were almost completely extinct um and so these are things like corals and stromatolites as well and of course the brachiopods <laughs> and the trilobites get it again <laughs> there's so many brachiopods and trilobites yeah um they're just they're just gonna keep dying until the next one for sure um, so because this one was mostly marine organisms and it didn't really affect the land plants or the arthropods that were all running around upstairs um, I think this has to be really ocean related so potentially an anoxic event so something happened to the oceans where we changed the geochemistry and so what would that be and mid-ocean ridge volcanism is very often invoked to do this when you kill things in the marine realm that don't affect the things on land. Right. And again, this, the last, the Ordovician Silurian we talked about, possibly oxygenating the bottom waters being the cause of this. Now it's lack of oxygen because of all this volcanism going on at these mid ocean ridges as plate tectonics is really cranking. Right. And so volcanoes. I have a slide in my earth history class that just says volcanoes are everything because <laughs> it's basically true. They really affect every part of those spheres that we talked about earlier in the show. Um, and volcanoes kind of have this twofold effect on climate. So where do we get all of our water vapor and our CO2 and other stuff in the atmosphere? Like where did we build our first atmosphere from and it's from volcanoes so volcanoes when they erupt spew out tons of 
water vapor and tons of CO2. And so we know CO2 makes the climate warmer, but what else do they spew out? Tons of other stuff. So aerosols, tiny little particles that can get entrained very high in the atmosphere. And if they get entrained up in the stratosphere, it's really actually hard to get them out. And so that has a cooling effect on the climate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. So <laughs> the volcanoes are a very complicated system, and they're a very energetic system, which mm -hmm. is what makes them so impactful to so many different spheres. Right. Exactly. Um, and they, I guess we just don't see, again, you think that today is how Earth has always been, right? Because that's all we know as humans. But today we have relatively little volcanic activity on Earth. We do, and even if you go look at the reports of what's going on, there's always several things erupting, Right, but that's still pretty calm. Yeah, it is really calm. Um, and so these mid-ocean ridges, this is, you know, we've talked about this in all of our plate tectonic shows and stuff, so you're spewing all of this stuff out, and you wind up spewing all this CO2 into the water, which actually starts to acidify the ocean. And that's bad, bad for all these soft-bodied little things, or even the things with shells that are floating around in there. Yes, and this makes things like carbonic acid. And a lot of these shells are calcite or aragonite. Your teeth are aragonite. Carbonic acid is in soda. It has the exact same effect, mm -hmm. except on their body. Right, yeah, exactly. So um, this kills lots of things, and this is... This is one of those mass extinctions where we can look back and say, hmm, that's interesting because that's a lot of what's happening now is the acidification of our oceans. And so I don't think that mid-ocean ridge volcanism has increased recently. I don't know. I don't study that. Um, but it's definitely still going on, right? And so you're still adding a lot of CO2 into the oceans in that manner. Right. And there are other sources of CO2 now, like us. Yes, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> so yes, we, uh, so <laughs> fish weren't driving cars in the Devonian, as far as we know. <laughs> it's it's true, but the fossil record is slightly unclear on that. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there, there's, of course, the also potential impact event that accompanies most of these mass extinctions. Uh, it really does. And so, you know, I've worked on impacts quite a lot. I know that John has attended and done a lot of sort of planetary geology in his past as well. So these are near and dear to our hearts. Um, I worked on an impact in... Nevada and it is the it's Devonian it's right around the time that this extinction happened it's not big enough to have done anything but it certainly did stuff to the shallow ocean that it impacted there and I mean some of these impacts can get pretty big and we'll talk about this when we talk about the pretty famous impact um <laughs> in the number five extinction so they do a lot of damage, but there are some big ones that are around that age, around the globe, but probably not big enough to have been the sole cause. And plus, we don't see any effect on land plants or animals, so the impact, while it might have done some damage locally, it's probably not responsible for the majority of death at the Devonian mass extinction. Yeah, and you know, you say it's not big enough to have done a lot. It did a lot in that very local area yes. very fast. <laughs> yes. Because these are still large events, but they don't have global effects generally, unless they're absolutely massive. 
Right, yeah. And so you got to be pretty big. But we'll talk about some that are pretty big. <laughs> yes, we are a very delicate system if a large <laughs> impactor comes in. Oh, uh, we are. Um, so we killed a lot of things in the ocean. And then it was a while later before we had another big mass extinction. And this one was about 250 million years ago. And this one's the worst. Yes, this is a massive, massive dying event. The Permian-Triassic mass extinction. So here we're looking at about 95% of everything on Earth going completely extinct. That's mind-blowing. I just want to sit on that for a minute, right? 95% of everything. So everything that's alive today came from 5% of what was left over 250 million years ago. Which came from, you know, 20% of what was left over before that, which came from right. the about 10 or 20% that was left over before that. Right, not to mention the 76% that got killed after that, and then the 75% of that that got killed after that in number four and five. And then here we are somehow. Shockingly, right? <laughs> So this Permian-Triassic mass extinction, this is definitely one that you want to search the geology art on because it is outrageously awesome. Um, they actually, I when I was searching this art, I found this, that people call this event the Great Dying. Yes, and there's actually a series of, I believe they call it the Hall of Extinctions in the new version of Cosmos where they talk about this and they have lots of really good art pieces in there and some very good descriptions. So if you're interested in these mass extinctions, more than what we're telling you, I highly encourage you to go watch that episode of Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's awesome. I have not seen that. Yes. So in, in the great dying, we look at about 90% of marine life and about 70% of terrestrial life right. going and away. And this is one that has lots of causes. You can almost invoke anything that can cause a mass extinction for this Permian-Triassic one. And I don't know if that's just us overreacting <laughs> um, or if, you know, all this stuff really was happening. Um, but that's probably why we should pay attention to it as well. Because right now, a lot of these same things are kind of going on. And so it's something to pay attention to, especially how CO2 affects the atmosphere and the oceans. Right, and so here we're saying that there's this huge amount of loss of biodiversity, and some people think, well, it must be an impact. We don't have any evidence that it was. Right. Um, and why don't we have any evidence that it was? Because, you know, you would think we would. We see, we have tons and tons of impact craters that are older than 250 million years. But in order to... I don't know, make this kind of huge global change. This thing has to be massive. And so, you know, maybe it hit in the ocean somewhere. That makes sense. This time period was when we had Pangea. So we were all together in one supercontinent. The ocean was, you know, the rest of the world. Um, but the problem is the oldest oceanic crust we have is Jurassic. Right. So if it did hit in the ocean, it's gone. It's been subducted and has re-erupted. Dang, plate tectonics, ruining our geologic history. I think you mean powering your geologic history. <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm a big, I'm a big 
impact event fan. I think it had to have happened. I did a paper on this back when I was an undergrad, um, and I still remember it just because I was so impressed with all these things. But there were a lot of other causes too, right? And one of them is the Siberian traps. And if I were to study igneous rocks, I think I would totally study flood basalts because I think they're very interesting. And um, we call these big flood basalts traps, actually, because it comes from a word sort of meaning steps, which is what they kind of start to look like because they just looks like a whole big flood of steps with all this basalt coming out. Um, we call these things large igneous provinces because it's just massive amounts of volcanic activity on land spewing out literally tons of lava. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at maybe one to four cubic kilometers of lava from the Cygnus province. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> one to four million cubic kilometers. It's impossible to even fathom. Uh, no, so that, that word doesn't even make sense, right? So I was looking up, like, aerial extent, because, you know, this is obviously, it's in Siberia, and it's an aerial extent, and this is, I think, a smaller estimate of all of Western Europe being covered by basalt. That is a lot of basalt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where volcanoes can do two things. They can either cool or warm the climate. Either way, it's probably bad. <laughs> yeah, so all this ash gets thrown into the air. That blocks out sunlight, like we said, uh, especially if it gets up into the stratosphere and stays suspended for, I mean, very long geologic time even. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And that can affect land plants, so things that depend on photosynthesis. It can affect ocean things that depend on photosynthesis. That causes a net cooling. Right, and it also ruins the food chain for all those things that eat those things that photosynthesize, right? So it works its way up. Um, and so just if you can't photosynthesize, okay, you die, but all the things that eat you die too. Yeah. And <laughs> at the same time, they're pumping out massive amounts of CO2, which can counteract some of this cooling. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't counteract the sunlight being blocked out. Exactly. But it also acidifies the ocean. Right, so you've got that same thing as before, except for in this case, you know, it's all this land um, volcanism that's happening, but it's still pumping CO2, which interacts with the ocean and causes that acidification. So we don't really have that going on now, but we're the volcanoes today, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's also a good show title. This one is just rife with excellent show titles. <laughs> Um, yes, it is. <laughs> so, you know, it could have been an impact, but really this massive amount of volcanism from the Siberian traps was a big deal. But in this case, we do kind of know. So these volcanoes probably threw out a lot of ash and blocked out the sunlight, which killed stuff. But it probably warming was more responsible than cooling because there's this other thing that we think happened here at the Permian Triassic, and that's dissociation of gas hydrates on the seafloor. And so this is something that I actually worked a lot in. <laughs> yeah, I figured you would uh, hop right on this one. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've been a while doing gas hydrate experiments, uh, mostly looking at the kinetics of formation and that kind of thing. But the idea here is these look like ice, but they're a substance called a clathrate or a hydrate. So you have a cage of water molecules that traps something like a, a gas molecule. So you can have methane hydrate or CO2 hydrate, all these different hydrates. 
Um, but let's go with methane hydrate. This is yeah. one that forms at the ocean floor. You have methane from biological processes, and you know, the squishy things bubbling up. You have very cold temperatures and high pressures at the seafloor. And so you actually get what looks like an ice that is gas trapped in this crystal lattice of water molecules. And when you try to warm this, it resists. It actually, the, the latent heat, <laughs> you have to work pretty hard. You have to put a lot of energy into the system. And when you finally do dissociate it, the gas is free. It goes up to the surface, out into the atmosphere, creates further warming, which dissociates more hydrate. So uh, this has been called in some time periods the clathrate gun hypothesis. And we have these now, right? Oh, yes. Hydrates are still very common. They actually pose a large hazard to industrial drilling operations, and they wreaked havoc with the recovery from the Deepwater Horizon incident as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, there's, I mean, methane is highly combustible, so these things go boom when you let them loose. There's also a problem of when they were trying to put the, the top hat structure over the well during the Deepwater Horizon incident, Mm-hmm. There was methane and all these other things, hydrocarbons coming out of the well, and it was cold and high pressure down there. So they actually ended up trapping the gas and forming massive amounts of methane hydrate that then became buoyant and lifted the structure off the well. Oh my gosh. Wow. I did not know that. That's And you can, uh, I mean, you can make these in a laboratory. We, we did it a lot. You can light methane hydrate on fire in your hand. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of YouTube videos about this. It is super cool. It's like you just like Google ice that burns and that's what you're seeing. Yeah, and then there are, of course, other types like CO2 and that kind of thing as well. But these are huge sinks of CO2 and other greenhouse gases like methane. And so you let those things go. And just like you intimated, John, this could be sort of a runaway reaction, right? The clathrate gun. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate over when this did or didn't happen. Uh, but yes, so the clathrates definitely played a role. But more interestingly, in this particular extinction, the CO2 levels were pretty low, but they were beginning to increase very rapidly, right. which should sound familiar. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, a lot of climate denial people will talk about, well, CO2 was way higher in geologic history than it is now it's actually fairly low now which is true but if you look back at the biggest mass extinction on the planet (laughs) it occurred with low co2 levels that were rapidly rising and in this case due to these siberian traps and then addition of co2 due to this methane uh, clathrate dissociation also happening today and the rise after the permian is pretty quick the Permian climate was similar today. Um, the Earth was in an ice house coming out of it and starting to warm up into the Mesozoic, just like today. And so this one we need to take note of because a lot of these same things are playing out today. And hopefully the 96% of life dying doesn't play out as well. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> have to really hope, hope so. And uh, yeah. in fact, we have two more mass extinctions to go through before we get to today and possibly the the ongoing sixth mass extinction. Right. So uh, I think we'll go ahead and 
break and put you in suspense until next week with saying, <laughs> next week, the land animals get it. <laughs> oh, finally, man. Dang land animals. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to start a, a series of show titles, you know, following the, the Friends model of the one where the land animals get it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I've never watched an episode of Friends in my life. You can send that mail to... <laughs> And it's not because I'm too young. I know I have a youthful voice. <laughs> I was a Seinfeld girl, not a Friends girl. So, you know. Uh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, in that case, it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> so while this isn't, you know, a funny paper, I thought it was a very interesting paper. And it has to do with glaciers, which you like. And there's some photography in it. Yeah, and there's even some experiments, and there are bugs. Yeah. So this is a weird thing that I hadn't thought about before. Um, and so this paper is the role of microbes in snowmelt and radiative forcing on an Alaskan ice field. And it's by Ganey et al. Um, and it came out in Nature Geoscience last year. And I got onto it because I was reading um, the second author, Michael Loso. Um, I was reading some of the research he did on... <laughs> Denali and how they have a microbe problem there because so many people are climbing Denali and their poop is everywhere that it's causing all this weird microbe reactivity on the mountain and really changing the ecosystem there. Ah, uh, the pooping. <laughs> exactly. And you know how we love papers about poop. Um, but so I found this um, just because I thought it was very pertinent to what we were talking about in terms of microbes causing climate change and apparently this is a really big deal you think of glacial environments as being you know kind of dead maybe you've got a few tiny little scrub plants everywhere but there are a lot of microbes that live on glaciers yeah and so if you get fresh snow on top of a glacier so it's it's stormy time you get a massive amount of snow deposited it's clean because it's just been deposited anybody who lives in an area where you get a lot of snow I can testify to this, will tell you <laughs> that snow is very bright. That's why glacier glasses are a thing. And glacier glasses, if you're not familiar, are the things like Jamie Heineman wore on Mythbusters. They completely surround your eyes with sunglasses and shields so that no light can get in from the sides or top or bottom because the snow reflects about 90% of the invisible radiation that hits it from the sun right back up into your eyeballs. Yeah, so that's... Uh... That's a really high albedo, right? We're approaching one on uh, the albedo scale, though. So point yeah, nine. so an albedo of 0.9. Albedo is mm -hmm. just how much energy gets bounced off whatever uh, you shoot it at here. So something like snow would have very high albedo. Uh, something like vegetation might have a moderate to low albedo. And then blacktop would have a very low albedo. Right, exactly. So anything you put on top of this snow is going to change the albedo. And so feasibly, these microbes are abundant enough that it actually works to reduce the surface albedo on these glaciers. And when you do that, you're not reflecting all that energy. I mean, well, you're going to start to melt it. Yeah, and the microbes aren't the only thing, but there's 
dust that gets deposited by winds, pollen, and all of that. But the microbes, interestingly enough, probably do this for evolutionary reasons because they need water to survive, and there's not a lot of water on a frozen glacier top. Yeah, this is crazy. So this is, it's kind of funny because, you know, they're doing this to survive, but then if they melt all the glaciers, I would say they die, but microbes never die, right? So It's true. (laughs) So, So these microbes actually make what's called red snow. That's gross. (laughs) They significantly lower the albedo of the snow so that it melts, they get liquid water, and in some cases they actually melt it all the way down to where it transitions from snow and fern, you know, packed snow, to where meters, meters down, it's gone to solid ice. So all the snow will melt off, and then they're sitting on top of ice, and they'll wait until next year when more snow comes, and then they migrate up through the snow to the top and start the whole process over again. Creepy. This is so creepy. I kind of got a little disturbed halfway through. I'm not going to lie. Because, um, <laughs> I mean, this is a lot of manipulation. And we're not talking about tiny amounts, right? And so some of this, like, that they looked at, um, I mean, they did a lot of things in this in this study, right? So they wanted to see if this is, are microbes doing this because they need to live? Right. And so they would do things like add NPK, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilizer to see if the algae needed nutrients. Right. And see how their communities responded to that. They would add water and see how the communities responded to that to try to understand what these microbes needed to live and whether them melting this glacier was actually helping them live. And they melted a significant portion of it. Yeah, and so to do this test, they would uh, cordon off these couple square meter areas and provide these different treatments, which if you read the methods section, the MPK enrichment was done with Scott's Lawn Fertilizer. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was really great. Uh, And when when they were talking about, um, I flagged this one as well, Um, when they were talking about the nutrient needs of microbes, because apparently there's a whole bunch of studies that sort of contradict each other about this whether microbes need these nutrients or whether they need this water because sometimes that never happens in the academic literature i know ever everything's just builds on each other and it's fine (laughs) um and so just keeping with our you know poo theme that we seem to go with on these papers (laughs) i thought this was the best description of poo on earth here so they're talking about observing these nutrient needs in the wild right and they talk about this other study. Fuji et al. attributed Antarctic snow algae distribution and abundance to alochthonous bird deposition of limiting nutrients. Alochthonous <laughs> bird deposition. <laughs> I get alochthonous bird deposition on my car all the time. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> so they didn't only have these little test plots. They also did some remote sensing looking at Landsat data, so looking at multispectral images and being able to utilize the red and the green channel to come up with this normalized snow darkening index, or NDI. Right, exactly. Uh, How'd you like the figures in this paper? They were mostly, uh, I mean, they're done very well. They're slightly confusing to the (laughs) non-specialist. Does that include you? Because it took me a long time with figure one. So figure one, it took me quite a long time with as well. Mm-hmm. But going down, so for example, if you look at figure three in this paper, which of course the paper's linked down in the show notes, mm-hmm. uh, this has 
large points, large text, very nice, thick, bold lines, and lines that should be relatively easy to differentiate. Uh, there are a little bit of red-green contrasts in here. Not too bad, though. You but know? not too I bad at all. Yeah. And they've even done things like using shading behind the main line for uncertainties. It's just the figures, they spent some time laying these out. I thought you would appreciate those. <laughs> um, so the one of their parts of their study, not the remote sensing part, but the part where they actually sort of feed the <laughs> the NPK fertilizer onto the glacier and then also kind of water it. Um, they have a supplemental movie attached showing this time-lapse photography. And I thought it was very interesting because at first I didn't really buy that their seeding did anything. Because that time-lapse photography, it just seemed like normal diurnal fluctuations. And it takes it a while, but eventually, it's just this weird thing in science, I feel like, this whole tipping point thing. Because eventually, these microbes melt a ton of the glacier, and then just this huge pool of water shows up from all this microbial activity. Yeah, and so, I mean, time-lapse photography makes any system look very interesting and dynamic and <laughs> yes. shows you the changes because we're so used to watching things evolve slowly that we ne don't necessarily notice right. the, the magnitude of the change. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other interesting points that they made in here was that some of the non-living particulates that get deposited, mm -hmm. uh, if they're hydrophilic, which would pretty much mean they're a non-polar molecule, Okay. Uh, they might just get buried in the snow and be fine. But if it's a hydrophobic particle, it actually just sits on top of the snowpack. Even you, know, you keep getting more snow. and <laughs> uh. <laughs> So we can have some continued effects from these things. And this has some serious implications for ice sheets, right? Uh, right, exactly. So um, that, along with these the actual foliage that's around so i mentioned that i would imagine these little arctic shrubby things right these high latitude microbes they say you know can potentially drive this climate feedback right so they're providing this radiative forcing on large scales which like i said you can see in the movie it's a very large area that kind of blooms open and you know that's going to have big effects on getting rid of these glaciers and therefore driving sea level rise Yes, and they even state in here that if you're doing some of these climate models, you need to consider microbial effects and their <sighs> radiative forcings, which just shows you how complicated and how interlocked all of these systems are. Oh, yeah, because I why I picked this was because I had never thought about that, and I taught a climate class before. You know what I mean? I mean, we talk about microbes in the system, but just to think about microbes on a single glacier and how much meltwater that could produce. Because what do they say that um, this one glacier that they were looking at, the microbes were responsible for 17% of the snow melt there. Yeah, 17%. Over <laughs> uh, almost two tenths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, this is something that needs to go into your models. Yeah. Absolutely. And hopefully will so after this paper. Yeah, and so if you have some data on microbial blooms affecting the albedo of all the snow in your backyard, <laughs> <laughs> or 
or any other fun papers that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear from you. We've also heard from a few folks about the other podcasts that you enjoy listening to. If you haven't sent those in, please go ahead and send them in so we can uh, compile a list to share with everybody and make some suggestions. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, drop us a line on Twitter. We're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Or you can chat in the Slack chat room. Uh, we are on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And if you're really enjoying our show and would like to send us feedback and, in addition, support us financially, we have a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.